following my podcast on the 15th of February 2021 called What Rough Beasts Are These? where I focused on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. The independent broadcaster and researcher Tony Gosling included an excerpt from that podcast in his weekly politics show. The politics show is based in Bristol and covers independent news, investigative journalism and analysis. Tony asked me to do another report on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum for last week's edition of The Politics Show, and a clip from that show follows here. I've included links to the show on my website. It's definitely worth listening to the whole show. Uh, when it comes to who's doing all this, uh, one of the clear people who is clearly going to benefit, you know, which is one of the things we do as journalists, who benefits is a guy called Klaus Schwab. He's from the World Economic Forum. He's the, one of the founders of it. Um, and there's been some very interesting work being done over the last week or so into who he really is. <clears throat> I couldn't think of anyone better than uh, Natalie Minnis, who does the Imagining Freedom podcast, um, to do a review of this podcast. And I put a link up to the podcast, and we're going to hear now from her doing her own. This is, this is just over 10 minutes, her report, but I think it's absolutely fascinating insight into some of the powers behind this Great reset, they're calling it. Apparently, there's going to be a big thing in June and July this year where they reset the world's economic system. Klaus Schwab working very closely with our very own Prince Charles, heir to the throne, on this replacement, really, for what is many people see as a failed international monetary fund, a completely new system. Uh, and obviously, that is going to be made a lot easier because of all the COVID measures um uh but you know no protests again about it all sorts of restrictions and things like that around and people are becoming more ready for something like this to happen i suppose it's equivalent to a kind of war you know where people have been having to go through these covid restrictions a bit like the old shock doctrine uh and so klaus schwab what is he up to who is he <clears throat> i mean the main i suppose uh, uh setting for this is the whole idea kevin that he's uh, basically privatising the United Nations. He's gone into a partnership agreement um, it, late in 2019 with the UN, who was running out of cash. Remember, of course, people like the World Health Organization, etc., etc., all part of the UN. Uh, so, uh, like a knight in shining armour, Klaus Schwab uh, has charged over the horizon and saying, OK, UN, enter a partnership agreement with us. I mean, it's a sort of partnership, which is, I suppose between an ivy and an oak tree, really. Uh, and we will help you out financially and we will help you run the UN. Uh, and so he's taking on a pretty important and amazing role there, effectively privatising the United Nations, Kevin. Yeah. <clears throat> Again, I've only picked this up on the edge, but if somebody like him is privatising the UN, it's for money. He's not doing it out of any sense of human goodness. You can be sure of that. Well, uh, well I mean, may, maybe he's just a lovely uh, chap, just like uh, Melinda Gates. They're doing it all for philanthropy. Yeah. No? So, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, as you say, ask the key question, Kui Bono, who benefits? Well, and Klaus is definitely is, one of those. 
yeah, Klaus is definitely going to benefit. But anyway, this this is a yeah, like I say, it's a bit of a longer clip. It's just over ten minutes, but we're going to hear now from Natalie Minnis uh, talking about this uh, podcast, an investigation, really, an excellent piece of investigative journalism into the one of the main people who's going to be benefiting from the COVID pandemic. This podcast was really fascinating. Their research really dovetailed with the kind of things that I've been researching as well. And I think Michael McKibben and his team have gone into it in more detail. And it's just fascinating. And what they found out, really, I was going to say fascinating and depressing because it's really horrific what these people are getting up to. So I think that the whole power elite thing is unravelling like knitting. The real meaning of apocalypse is nothing to do with the end of the world. It means uncovering, unveiling or revelation. And that's exactly what's happening right now. The powers that shouldn't be are showing their hand, whether unintentionally or not. But they're showing us what they're up to. At the start of this podcast with Michael McKibben, they were saying... The missing pieces are shouting, shouting at us. And that's what I felt when I started looking into Klaus Schwab. I just thought it's what they weren't saying in Wikipedia that was shouting at me. So they've done research into these missing pieces of Klaus Schwab's online biography because it's clearly been cleaned up. And they also mentioned Ancestry.com and they said that not all of his biography was on that but there were some leads that they found from it because it's just been done in such a clumsy way. So it didn't take me very long to find Schwab's association with the Bilderberg Steering Committee and also Michael McKibben and his team seem to have uncovered the mystery behind Klaus Schwab's mother, who appears to have been a Jewish woman who moved to the United States. I mean, this may be true and it may not, but this is the information that they've found. And it might be that she was fleeing for her life at the time. Apparently in Klaus Schwab's latest book, he claims that another woman was his mother. Maybe his brother could have been his stepbrother. They might have had a different mother because it seems that his brother does acknowledge their sort of true mother. But it does seem that there may have been this Jewish woman who Klaus Schwab has um, tried to leave out of his biography. And it's very significant because, as Michael McKibben and his team have revealed, Klaus Schwab's father's firm, Escher Viss, was earmarked as a model Nazi company in the late 1930s. They discovered documents in the National Archives in Washington, which showed that Escher Viss imported flamethrowers from Switzerland for the Nazis, and that Ravensburg, where the Schwab's family was, where Klaus Schwab grew up, Ravensburg is the place where the Germans first practiced eugenics, apparently, in 1933. Michael McKibben also discovered in Norwegian archives that Escher Viss started the production of heavy water, which is used for nuclear weapons, in 1929. Ravensburg, apparently, was a hub for the Allies, moving gold out of Germany into Switzerland, according to this podcast. Now, it's really interesting that it was an apparently an insignificant place and it wasn't bombed in the Second World War. It obviously had much more significance than the official history was letting on. And after the war, Escher Wiss was merged with Salzer AG. And then after that, there was involvement in the nuclear 
industry in apartheid South Africa. So it's really not a pretty picture at all. So the reason that this is important is that the more you look into it, the more you get a picture of this elite, which Michael McKibben and the other um, podcaster identify as the black nobility, who are using these powerful figures and institutions like the World Economic Forum to reassert their grasp on power. And it's not just over Europe, it's over the whole world now. Klaus Schwab has made a night by Queen Elizabeth. So it's not some conspiracy theory. It's easy to find this out just through Google searches or Wikipedia searches. I don't use Google, but whatever search engine you use, the information is really there in plain sight. And the more you look into it, the dirtier it gets. I don't like talking about the Illuminati or or the black nobility, because it almost makes these people seem more special than they are. And I personally think that we are all to blame for all of this, because it's through our laziness, I'm not really speaking personally, but through our communal laziness and complicity and wanting to keep our rotten jobs, being wedded to our lives of ease and convenience, that we've kind of given the nod to these atrocities And I do think there are atrocities involved in this. Just as I've been saying in some of my podcasts, I think this is actually about the Fourth Reich. I see the Fourth Industrial Revolution as the Fourth Reich, and that's exactly how Michael McKibben describes it on the podcast. They describe it, the World Economic Forum, as the World Economic Fascism, and they've linked it with the Pan-European Union and aristocratic figures like Otto von Habsburg and Albert von Habsburg. So Otto von Habsburg spoke at the first meeting of the World Economic Forum in 1971. He was very outspoken against the Nazis, but he wanted to restore monarchical rule. And he also worked very hard to bring Eastern Europe back into the EU. And most of that sounds benign, but... I think there is always in the background, however the talk seems to be quite egalitarian, in the background there's always this thing about reasserting elite control. And I was really interested in what these guys said about the Holy Roman Empire because in 2018 to 2019, I started to look into the origins of the EU just because the Brexit debate was raging and people were getting so emotional about it but no one seemed to have any actual facts about Europe no one seemed to really understand what it was all about so I thought I would try and find out for myself because there were posts online about the origins of the EU but they always seem to come from a biased perspective and I thought they might be true but I really want to find out for myself so I started doing research And I actually started by looking at the EU's own information. And when I looked into the origins of the EU, I was really surprised when they were talking about the founding fathers, which sounded as if they were trying to compare it with the American Revolution. They spoke about these 11 founding fathers, all men, by the way, and five of these men had received the Carroll's Prize or the Charlemagne Prize. And this is a prize that's awarded at a ceremony in the town of Aachen on Ascension Day. I find it interesting that Count Richard Kudenhove Kalergi, who was instrumental in founding the Pan-European Union, which developed into the EU, he's not considered one of the EU founding fathers. 
But he was the first person to be awarded the Carroll's Prize in 1950. And that relates to the Emperor Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the king of the Franks in the 8th century. And he united Western Europe. Aachen became his imperial capital city. And he was crowned the Emperor of the Romans on Christmas Day in 800 by Pope Leo III. And this eventually evolved into the Holy Roman Empire. So when Germany was divided into principalities, the princes or electors would elect one of their peers to be crowned emperor by the Pope. The tradition of papal coronations was discontinued in the 16th century. But it's really interesting that Napoleon, when he was dominating Europe, had himself crowned emperor by the Pope. The EU seems to cling to this image of Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire. So there's even a young Charlemagne prize. It's not just looking back to history. This seems to be so critical to the way that the EU sees its foundations. But it's not just about a united Europe. It's about Europe united under a crown. That's the significance of this Charlemagne association. So I like to think that just as Napoleon met his Waterloo with Britain, maybe with Brexit, the EU is meeting its Waterloo. In the podcast with Michael McKibben, they discussed Mark Rich and the fact that he was pardoned by Bill Clinton in 2000. So I hadn't heard about Mark Rich, but I had heard about the company he founded, Glencore. And that company first came to my attention about 10 years ago because... At the time, it was merging with, I can't even remember the other company, but the CEO was being paid an absolutely extraordinary amount of money, and that's why it became newsworthy. So when I looked up Mark Rich on that, online, he was the founder of Glencore. It was just a litany of high finance with mafia links and deals being done with the world's most horrific criminals in different places around the world, and... Well, politicians, at best, the best thing you could say about it is that they were looking the other way. This is all around us, this kind of criminality. I mean, the information about him, this man who I'd never actually heard of before I listened to that podcast, is available from a two-second online search. So it's not something that you have to go and delve into the public records to find. It's staring at us. It's staring us in the face and it's in plain sight. But it's not announced on the six o'clock news. And it's very easy for most people just to turn away from this kind of thing that's, that's just like a cancer that's eating away at all our, our authorities, the whole society really that, that we live in, that we operate in. I sometimes think that it's a psychology that m most people in a way have a knowledge of this and they just don't want to face up to it. They don't want to face that the money that they earn the things that they buy all contributes to this seamy side of life. They prefer just not to know about it. And I sometimes think it's about accepting your shadow side, seeing that I'm not trying to be a perfect person. I love a good cup of coffee or a nice chocolate bar, and it's not always fair trade. Maybe that's come from a country where there's um, horrible things happening. We all have links to this. And I think we need to face up to that. Um, most of us just don't want to think about it and maybe that's where this sort of cognitive dissonance come, comes in but with this Covid crisis and this coercion to have this vaccine 
this is pushing us towards this crisis point where we have to fight this now. People like me who don't want to be part of this zombie apocalypse, we have to protest against this strongly, even to fight against it. And it's not something that we want to do. I would much rather just enjoy my comfort and my leisure time. But, you know, the air that we breathe is being restricted by this. Um, well, mine's not because I refuse to wear the mask. But when you have to wear a mask, it's actually the air, air that we breathe that is being restricted. We're being forced to breathe in fibres instead of fresh air. And that's brought us to this point where it's, you know, you have to decide which side you're on and whether you're going to fight it or not. The, gauntless, the gauntlet is being laid down. But at the same time, the real attackers are exposing their identity. Natalie Minister there with her report on that podcast. I'll put... Uh um that podcast a link to it uh, anyway up it's just much longer uh so we've got a super condensed version there great great uh insight i think from natalie what about this idea that they're, they're revealing who they are at the same time as they're trying to uh, put us in a cage Evan? well as i said her research into the background is extremely interesting and this Holy Roman Empire crops up all over the place. It's a dream within the European aristocracy in particular. I mean, we have in the United Kingdom aristocracy a prince of the Holy Roman Empire, the Duke of Wellington. They still think they exist, but people like that, they move in these circles, they don't pay taxes, their assets are hidden in tax havens, they operate above the law. So what we get from our parliament is 971 pages of alleged protection for our privacy, which in fact doesn't don't work at all. People Can I like, just make a quick point? And that is that these people are not restricted in their travel at all. We've seen several examples of, um, you know, where they just get some sort of dispensation. They'll get a lawyer onto it and pay a few bob, and off they go wherever they feel like. Yeah, I mean, the executive jets are still flitting about everywhere. They don't even get checked by customs when they arrive. Um, Yeah. What about, okay, so she talks a few, mentions a few things that I'm not all that familiar with, this idea of the black nobility, um, you know, the... Uh, the idea that these people, that Schwab's family were involved in 1929 in in, their, in beginning production of heavy water. Now, this really was, you know, this is 20, 1929 before the Nazis were in power. This is literally uh, at the time where the very first atom was being split. Um, and, of course, Germany was a centre for physicists that were doing this sort of thing. So he was right in there at the very, very start of the nuclear age. This specific guy who we're now entrusting our entire future to, at least our financial future. And another thing which struck me was that they were involved in the nuclear industry in apartheid South Africa, which was illegally and covertly manufacturing nuclear weapons alongside the Israelis. Well, the assumption has to be they got. But the real help for the South African bomb came from the United Kingdom. Uh, when people were allowed to leave Aldermaston without saying where they were. 
I mean, a lot of them put their next address as some uh, riverside cafe in Marseille, because that's all you had to do. This is rigging the regulations. The fact that you were going on to South Africa after you'd done your night in the cafe was never mentioned because the regulations didn't ask you where you were going. So a lot of the nuclear weapons expertise that reached South Africa came from the United Kingdom through a dodge, a loophole. Yeah, with uh, Klaus Schwab's fingerprints all over it. Um, yeah. At least his family's fingerprints. Uh, and interesting that he's uh, you know, apparently got two mothers, one of which he is prepared to talk about and the other one which he isn't, which reminds me a bit of our uh, very own Mayor Marvin Rees, who's quite happy to go in and press releases from the city council about his mum, but he doesn't want to talk about his father, Valentine Walker, who is one of the people who first introduced crack cocaine into Bristol in the 1980s in order to disrupt the black community and then uh, then there is alleged anyway to have attacked the leader of the anti-apartheid movement in bristol in the 1980s that's valentine walker the mayor's father he doesn't like to talk about um of course that doesn't reflect badly on marvin himself but it does raise suspicions as were raised uh, by steve norman before he died uh, that uh, perhaps Marvin got his conveyor belt to power through the Yale World Fellowship Program. And I talked to uh, Brian Gerrish about that. You can listen to the full version of that uh, uh, tonight, later tonight, as I, I'll upload it at thisweek.org.uk, um, about the Yale World Fellows Program, uh, possibly being simply because of what his father, Valentine Walker, did for the establishment in the 1980s in getting rid of the anti-apartheid movement in the city fascinating ideas but look the, i love wave um uh, natalie talks about the zombie apocalypse because i feel a bit like this that we're being insulted at every step you know that there's a lot of insults to our intelligence we're not supposed to think about these things just be told what to do even if they don't make sense uh, and that i think is a, definitely a, a wake it should be a wake-up call for many people out there to, to check these things out further and actually make make their own decisions rather than simply to follow illogical nonsensical and possibly fascist government guidelines but what about this um what about this uh, uh idea of the pan-european union and this guy otto von Habsburg? because these people apparently even though the um uh, holy roman empire is supposed to have disappeared long ago apparently they're still keeping it going behind the scenes yeah. kevin yeah well i met a lot of i met Otto van Habsburg, myself. He was about five foot one, small man, very small man. And you think, but the Habsburgs had access to vast amounts of money. They were supposed to have been, you know, um, when they lost the Habsburg crown and all this, but they kept the money and they got huge compensation from uh, Bohemia and Moravia, uh, in Czechoslovakia, they still and they still have compensation cases going in Austria, so they're loaded. But he was, but they have cousins everywhere. I mean, it's not a family; it's a tribe. It and does, they all give it does, The other um, thing they do is they give each other titles. Well, they love that, don't they? And and yeah. special, you know, Knights Templar style outfits and things they love wearing. 
uh, as if they're some sort of medieval knight, you know. But uh, this is actually getting a little bit similar, isn't it, to China? Because what you end up with, with with these super rich aristocrats, these Holy Roman Empire types, is they surround themselves with sycophants, uh, a bit like President Xi. Well, I mean, they surrounded the Habsburgs, surrounded themselves with a court, you know, sycophants, people who always said yes to everything. But that's how you stay alive in a court. You never raise a query and you never ask a question. Well, it depends who the monarch is, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you know, there are there have been. I mean, I remember reading about Charles II, for example, in his court. Uh, he used to love love it when people took the mickey out of him and give him a good pat on the back, which is not the sort of thing you get. You know, it's either chalk and cheese. Some of these monarchs are are okay, and they have been during the past, like Alfred the Great, people like that. And others of them are just, you know, imposters. Really, I would call them. Anyway, we're going to have a listen now to. Um...